It is hard to express how much affection I have for the song we just sang, Be Thou My Vision. It's truly a, a wonderful song um, by many rights, but uh, it's also a song that uh, Lauren and I had sung on our wedding day. So it's a song that holds a special place in our hearts. However, uh, and I know that there are a few of you all that's planning weddings right now uh, in here, I, I would encourage you to take this into consideration. Please check with your musicians and singers about the tempo at which they will be playing or singing uh, their songs. Um, our musician, we just took for granted that he would uh, play it at a normal tempo. He decided to play it at the slowest tempo imaginable. Um, if he were leading us this morning, we would just now be rounding into verse 2, I think. I didn't know that you could possibly fit so many syllables into a word like vision or be. Um, but uh, nonetheless, it is hard to think of a, a more fitting song to begin the new year with than Be Thou My Vision. We desperately need the Lord to be our vision, whatever may befall us. This year, um, whether good or ill, may Jesus Christ, the high King of heaven, the ruler of all, be front and center in our minds and our hearts through it all. Well, this morning I would ask that you turn with me to the book of Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4. And as we consider this text this morning, we'll be asking a question that can be somewhat troubling. And the question is, where did God go? This is a question that sometimes people may ask in their darkest and most fearful times. When we hear news of a tragedy or wars or rumors of wars, even as we've heard this past week, we wonder often, where is God in all of this? Has he left us? Is he indifferent to our suffering, to our distresses? Where did God go? Undoubtedly, there were times when the people of Israel asked that very question. They asked it in the wilderness on multiple occasions when Pharaoh was bearing down on them and it looked like they would be destroyed on the banks of the Red Sea. They asked, where is God? When they thirsted, they said, are there not graves enough for us in Egypt? Where is God that he would lead us out here to die? When they stood on the verge of entering the promised land, it looked like their foes were too powerful for them to overcome. They wondered, where is God? They would undoubtedly ask the same question again when centuries later they were led away into exile into Assyria and into Babylon, wondering where the Lord had gone. However, this is a question that, at least in Israel's case, we can answer pretty easily. For while the people would feel the, the absence of God from them, the prophets had told them precisely why they would experience that, what God would do and why he was going to do it. And so this morning, let's read this for ourselves. So if we wonder in our own lives, perhaps, where did God go, we might be better able to understand it. And so I ask that if you are able, that you please stand together with me. As we read Hosea chapter 4, beginning in verse 15, down through verse 15 of chapter 5. 
Hosea 4, verse 15, it says, Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to beth Aven, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm in Bethaven. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Lord, this morning we come to you as a people eager to know you, to love you, to feel your presence in our lives. And yet often we find tragically that that is not the case. Instead, what we experience is distance, sometimes even a silence when we go to you. Lord, I pray that you would help us by using this text this morning to examine our own lives, to Put ourselves under the microscope of your word to see if there be any sin in our lives that we need to repent of, to see if we have failed you in any way, and then to 
acknowledge our guilt, and turn and seek you earnestly. Lord, I pray that you would help me to deliver your word. Help me to remember to save what is true and needful and to forget what is not. And Lord, may you be glorified in what we say and do here this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, the text that we have just read, I think, divides neatly into three similar sections that's followed by a fourth section of practical application. In each of these three sections, Hosea lists very specific sins that have been committed by Israel. And he usually refers to the northern kingdom of Israel in this text as Ephraim, which was the largest and most prominent tribe at this time. Ephraim was the representative of all the ten northern tribes of Israel. And so he mentions them time and time again. And after listing their sins, Hosea would then explain the consequences, what God is going to do as a result of their sins, how God is going to punish them or deal with them because of what they have done. All of that's pretty standard fare for a prophet. That's what we expect. You have done this. God is going to do this as a result. Buckle up. Get ready. Because it's coming. That's what we tend to expect when we see these type of prophecies. But the most striking feature of this particular unit is the insertion of the references to Judah in each of these sections. You might remember that Hosea was ministering to and in the northern kingdom of Israel. He was speaking to the people that had separated themselves from Judah considered themselves a distinct political entity from them. And so these references to Judah throughout this particular section is interesting. It's these references that actually give this text its structure and move the narrative along that progresses what's taking place in these prophecies. It also connects this passage to the rest of the book of Hosea. You may recall that at the end of Hosea chapter 1, At the birth of Hosea's third child, we see a reference to Judah there as well. And so the prophet is always seeking to remind the people that despite the fact that they are divided politically and nationally at this point in time, that their fates remain intertwined. That they still remain singularly the people of God and he will deal with them as he pleases. This first section were able to see specifically how God's people had strayed from his commandments as he lists the sins here at the end of chapter 4 that they have committed. Hosea warns them here, he says, Do not visit Gilgal or beth Aven. These are significant places in the history of Israel. They're places where God had worked mighty miracles, where God had revealed himself to his people, where they had crossed over into the promised land. But at this point in time, they'd become places of cultic false worship, idolatrous worship, where they sacrificed to false gods and did all kinds of other inappropriate things. They often would worship according to the law. They would come and bring the sacrifices as they were specified by Moses, but yet they would use those sacrifices as offerings to false gods. And they would think that they were doing what the Lord had commanded them to do. But not only did they worship idols there, We're also told that they were thoroughly debauched as a people. Hosea says that they would drink and drink until their alcohol was gone. And and once that occurred, they would participate in sexual immorality. In other words, all of this was excess. 
excess in the extreme. Instead of the proper and appropriate religious devotion that Moses had prescribed, that God had prescribed, they went beyond those boundaries. They included the false gods of the nations around them. They included these cultic shrines that weren't the place where God had told them to worship. They, they transgressed his bounds. They did so as well with the drink. They transgressed the bounds of what was appropriate and what was normal. Drinking to excess and drunkenness. They did the same with their sexual immorality. Instead of keeping it within the confines of, of marriage, it turned to whoring. And so the people are basically essentially saying to God, you can set your limits. We're going to blow right past them. We're going to do what we want to do, what seems right in our eyes. Rather than obeying and keeping your laws, we'll just keep on going. Yeah, I know you've set boundaries in place. You've set limits. We don't care about those limits. That's essentially what Israel is saying to God here and what Hosea is calling them out for. And so Judah in this first section is merely warned. Hosea says, don't let Judah become guilty. In other words, he's saying, Judah, learn from your northern brothers here. Don't do these things. These are not good ideas for you to follow. Because as a result of these sins, we see in this first section that the provision of the Lord is removed. The Lord asks here rhetorically, he says, Israel is like a stubborn heifer. Can the Lord now feed them? Like a lamb in broad pastures? Can I continue to provide for them? Can I continue to meet their needs when they are so stubborn? This is a wake-up call here to Israel because essentially the prophet is reversing the blessings of Psalm 23. The, The words of the psalmist come to mind as we read this. He says, can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? Well, what had Psalm 23 promised? It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. But here the Lord says, can I do that? Can I keep providing for you in this way? How can I do that? You are too stubborn for me to feed you like this. You are too stubborn for me to provide for you. The Lord is certainly a provider for his people. Often in spite of their faithlessness, not because of their faithfulness. Yet he indicates that there is coming a point here where this provision is actually detrimental to them. When his people blatantly ignore him, when they take his blessings for granted, when they even use the things that he's blessed them with to go and and continue carrying out sin after sin after sin, how can he continue to provide for them when that's what they're going to do with his provisions? It's not in their best interest for him to keep providing for them. We ought to be able to take something away from this. We ought to understand that we must not take the blessings of the Lord for granted. We often only recognize something as a blessing when it is removed from us. If you were only able to keep what you had already thanked God for since you woke up and got up out of bed this morning, what would you have left? If you were to think back on, on all the things that you've thanked God for today, let, let's, let's give you a little bit more space. Let's go back a week. And let's just say you're only able to keep all the things that you have thanked God for this week. What would you have left? Some of us might have to walk out of here naked. But I don't know where we'd walk to because we might not even have homes left. 
might not have food left to put in our belly because we haven't thanked God for his provisions. We haven't recognized that those things actually are provisions from God. Everything that we have is a provision from God. It comes from his hand. And we ought to thank him for it. We ought to acknowledge that they come from him. Do not take his blessings for granted. And also don't use his blessings as Israel did for excess. To thumb your nose at him by by using what he gives you to perpetuate sin. We need to heed the warning that Judah was issued. Do not follow this pathway to sin. Do not become guilty in this way. In the second section, we see that Judah, unfortunately, did not heed this warning. Here we're told in verse 5 that Judah will actually stumble right along with Ephraim. Ephraim will stumble, so too will Judah. All of God's people are ensnared. They have not maintained faithfulness. And as a result, just as the provision of the Lord was removed, so too will the presence of the Lord be withdrawn. Hosea says, when they seek him, they will not find him because he has withdrawn. And so the question arises, where did God go? Now understand, this is not undermining the omnipresence of God. Even as we heard Tom pray earlier, there is nowhere we can go to flee from the presence of God. God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. What this refers to instead is the people's access to him will they be able to access him will they be able to approach him and the answer to that question is no they will not have access to God he is going to withdraw from him this is a terrifying proposition to be abandoned by the one on whom you utterly depend to go looking for him and to not find him what a terrifying thing that would be God has withdrawn his presence, but not out of cruelty. He hasn't done this to be mean to his people. Notice what Hosea says in verse 4. He says their deeds actually do not permit them to return to their God. So it's not just that God is withdrawing himself from them, that he is, not, that he is withdrawing his accessibility from them. He says their deeds actually do not permit them to return to their God. The people here are restrained. The prophet's painting a picture of a people in bondage. They are in chains to their sin. They could not turn to the Lord even if they wanted to because they are utterly corrupted by their sin. It holds them in chains like slavery. They may think that they're in control of their lives, that they're doing what they want, that they're pursuing the pleasures that make them happy. Pursuing every sort of fleshly desire. Yet all the while, it's bondage and death to them. They can't see it. And they can't escape it. It has, its, it has them so firmly in its grasp. We need to realize here once again that we ourselves either are now or once were in this same pitiable condition. Your neighbors, your co-workers, your children, your parents... We all have experienced this slavery. We were born into it. This is the condition that we started out in. Trapped in sin. Unable to see even that we need to turn to God. Unable to do so even if we wanted to. 
Jesus himself says in John 8, 34 and following, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Our sin nature, our wicked deeds, they prevent us from turning to the Lord in true repentance and faith. And so what do we need? We need to be set free from those things. We need to be set free from this body of death, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, so that we may seek the Lord, freed from the chains of sin that makes slaves of us. We need to be freed truly and completely. The world tries to offer us freedom in all sorts of things, in all sorts of sin and debauchery. That's what Israel was trying to seek. They were trying to seek freedom in drunkenness and sexual immorality and idolatry. And they thought they were getting it, but they were only getting more bondage. They were only binding themselves tighter and tighter with the chains of sin. We need this freedom, though, because if we remain in slavery, there is coming a terrible day when God's presence and access to God will be utterly withdrawn. When we're finally told, depart from me, I never knew you. As Jesus says, you cannot be a slave and a son at the same time. Those two things are incompatible. So then if the people are not capable of seeking God because of their deeds... And if God removes his presence from them so that even if they were to seek him, they could not find him. What hope is there for this people? This seems like a pretty hopeless predicament based on what the prophet said. If you just take what he's telling them. He says, they'll go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. But he tells them before that. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. So so what hope could there possibly be for this people? What hope could there possibly be for us who are likewise bound to sin from birth? We have to wait a minute before hope comes because there's more bad news yet to come from the prophet. We've seen the provision of the Lord removed because of sin, the presence of the Lord withdrawn. Now we see the punishment of the Lord poured out. Not only on Ephraim, who we're told was determined to go after filth, but also on Judah. The progression here then is complete. First, Judah was warned. Do not become guilty. Don't pursue these sins like Israel. Then they were told that they would stumble like Israel. You're going to stumble just like Israel. You've... You've done these same things. Now, in the final section, Judah is shown to be every bit as guilty and vile as Israel. And so we're told they will experience the exact same outcome. It's not going to be any different from them. It says, I will, upon them, upon them, I will pour out my wrath like water. The wrath of God being poured out on Israel and Judah because of their sin. What's interesting, though, in this third section is the example of the depravity of Judah that the prophet chooses to lose or chooses to use here. How do we know that Judah is so bad? He says, because the princes of Judah have become 
like those who move the landmark. Now, wait a second. Israel's over here whoring, drinking, pursuing idolatry. Judah's moving landmarks? Seems like we're a little bit skewed here in perspective. Seems like one of those doesn't quite weigh out to be the same as the other. But this is a serious offense. It may not seem like it to us, but in Deuteronomy chapter 27, a curse was placed upon anyone who moved a landmark. Moving a landmark amounted to stealing. Stealing your neighbor's land, saying this property that that was once accounted to them is now mine. And I'm just going to move the fence a little bit to, to claim that. But it was more than just stealing. It represented an attack upon God's own provision and promise. Remember that the land itself was a gift from God. And it was a birthright to be kept in families from generation to generation to generation. And so essentially moving a landmark was to accuse God of not providing your family with what it needed. To say that God's provision wasn't enough. To say that God perhaps wasn't as wise in doling out the tribal allotments as he ought to have been. So this is indeed a very serious offense, even if the world may have judged this to be a petty crime. God saw it for what it was. It was an affront against his holiness. And so likewise, we ought not think that our minor sins, the little things we do in the dark, the things that we think are okay because they don't actually hurt anybody or because nobody knows about it, those things too are an affront to God and they make us worthy of having God's wrath poured out on us like water. In this final section here, the punishment is spelled out in very graphic terms. His provision has been removed, his presence withdrawn, his punishment poured out. He then says that he will attack them like a ravenous lion and will tear them apart. And although he says they're going to seek help from Assyria, they will not get it. There will be no one to deliver them. This language ought to terrify us. That was the prophet's intent. It was supposed to stir the people in fear to repent and turn to the Lord. You see, this is not a text that we ought to read like disinterested academics, scratching our heads and saying, well, that's very interesting. No, this ought to make our bones quake, that God would tear apart his people and that no one would be able to rescue them. If God was willing to do this to Israel, what fate awaits us? What could we expect if we participate in the same type of sins? Now, before we go further, there are two important caveats that I want to provide here. First, as we have been going through this text, perhaps you see yourself in this. Perhaps you, (coughs) pardon me, perhaps you feel like the Lord's provision has dried up in your life, that his presence has been withdrawn, and perhaps you may even feel like his heavy hand of punishment lies upon you. Just because you feel those things, it does not necessarily mean that you are guilty of great sin. It may mean that. And you may need to repent and seek the Lord. But God may also seem to be silent or distant for any number of reasons. He may be attempting to draw us close to Him. 
He may be using hard circumstances to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. His silence may be a way of calling us to cry out to him, to hunger and thirst after him. God in his silence may very well be treating you as a son, not an enemy. And so how are we to know the difference? Well, ask yourself, have I committed a sin? Go to what the word says. Have I I transgressed God's laws? Examine yourself. Participate in that introspection that asks, am I guilty? We often don't want to go there because what we far too often find is, yes, yes I am. I've wronged someone, I've wronged God, I've broken his word, I've sinned against him. We may find that we are guilty of more sin than we had previously imagined. We ought to pray and ask God to reveal it to us. If we've committed sin, what do we need to repent of? What do we need to turn from? But perhaps if we participate in that self-examination, we don't find sin that needs to be repented of. In that case, pray that the Lord would fulfill his promise to satisfy the hungry and thirsty. That your hunger for him would lead to greater satisfaction in him. Remember, Elijah, the prophet, became depressed, downhearted because he did not sense the presence of God at all. And he fled into the wilderness and the Lord brought him before him and and he showed him the, the... whirlwind and the the earthquake and the fire and God wasn't in those things it was the still small voice and so perhaps we may need to seek the Lord more earnestly if we are sensing distance from God we need to pursue him pursue him diligently the second caveat is also important do not think that if you repent and seek the Lord that your circumstances will change immediately The Lord delights to be sought by his children. And sometimes when we do seek the Lord, we will experience the overwhelming rush of grace that comes from knowing him. But sometimes we must patiently seek him. Jesus uses examples of a persistent neighbor, of a nagging woman going to a judge as examples of how we should come before God. It says not not that God is like these people, like the unjust judge, like the sleepy neighbor, but he says this is how we ought to go to him. Sometimes we have to wait. Abraham had to wait for a son. Ruth had to wait for a redeemer. David had to wait for a kingdom. But God will come through. God will be faithful if we seek him. So what hope may we find in this? Well, after his provision is removed, after his presence is withdrawn, after his punishment is poured out, When we are left asking only where did God go, what hope do we have? Well, only in this, that the patience of the Lord is enduring. Though the Lord says that he will withdraw from his people, it is for a purpose. He is withdrawing in order to wait. And to wait for what, he says. He says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. He's waiting for his people to acknowledge their guilt and to seek him. See, this is what we must do. We must acknowledge, yes, we are sinners. We have transgressed God's law. We must seek him, acknowledge our guilt, 
and seek Him. Again, God is never truly absent, though He is not always accessible on our whims. When we truly seek Him, He will be found. He tells us that He is waiting to be found by His people. And He has showed us how He is willing to be found by condescending to us, coming near as He possibly could to us, coming in the flesh amongst us, God with us, Emmanuel. How do we know that God wants to be found by His people? He comes to us. He dwells among us. And when Christ departed, He sent His Holy Spirit to live in the heart of every believer. So then to answer the question, where did God go? Well, He withdrew from His people for a time. But then, praise God, He came again and now resides with them forever so that He may be found at any time by anyone who seeks Him. Do you lack His provision? Do you miss His presence? Do you strain under His punishment this morning? Then I urge you, Throw yourself upon His patience. It is enduring. It is there. It is accessible. We see in this passage the wrath that is due our sin. How awful it really is. It makes us worthy only to be torn asunder under the wrath of God. For it to be poured out like water on us. For us to be torn apart and no one to rescue But the reason that God can be patient with us is because He has done those things to His Son. He has torn the flesh of Christ in His wrath. The Lion of Judah was torn as a lion tears its prey. This is what we celebrate in communion. His flesh torn for us. His body broken. He was torn for our drunkenness, for our sexual immorality, for our idolatry, even for our moving of boundary stones, for our trusting in political allies instead of the one true king, as Israel does here, turning to Assyria. He tore Christ, and no one rescued him so that we ourselves might be rescued, set free from our bondage to sin. The Lord has returned to his place, and he is patiently waiting for us to acknowledge our guilt and seek his face. Have you done that? Have you ever truly come to grips with the reality that you yourself are guilty? And have you sought the Lord? If you have done that, then praise God you have found Him because He makes Himself accessible to us in Jesus Christ. But if you have not ever acknowledged your guilt before God, you stand condemned under His wrath. Will you acknowledge your guilt and seek him? He offers himself to us in Christ. He may be found. He's available. He is accessible and he will provide for us because he is our good father. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we thank you for your word. Lord, we tremble under the condemnations, but we rejoice in the promise of your patience that you extend to us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we thank you that though the pronouncement was made that that your wrath will be poured out, that you will tear transgressors apart, that 
we don't have to fear that if we are in Christ because you have torn him apart in our stead. You rent his flesh like a lion tears its prey. And though he cried out to you, Father, that this cup would pass from him, no one came to rescue him. He endured it all. Lord, we now have access to you because of that. And so I pray, Lord, that none would leave here without embracing the grace that we have in Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.